Welcome to Meditations with Zohar. I'm here with Joe Lonsdale, who is a serial entrepreneur and investor. He's a co-founder of Palantir. He's the founder of the Cicero Institute, which is a think tank. And he's also the founder of a new university, the University of Austin. And in addition to all that, he hosts the podcast, The American Optimist. So welcome, Joe. Thank you, Zohar. It's good to see you. You as well. I'd like to begin with the concept of optimism. Uh, you embrace that as a label, and there's a, a certain saying that pessimists sound smart, uh, optimists win, or uh, pessimists sound smart, optimists get rich. Um, I personally feel drawn to optimism as well, <laughs> but I'm just wondering if uh, you could walk me through your journey to and through optimism, how it has developed or changed, and if you think that optimism is primarily a temperament, you, you have it or you don't, or if it's something that can be taught or cultivated. You know, it's both. It's definitely a temperament. Uh, it's definitely something that you know, I think because I was so optimistic, I think my second brother ended up being slightly more cynical. It's just, you kind of react to your environment, you know, in, in different ways. But you know, it's it's also it's also clearly, uh, you know, you, you kind of want to engineer yourself to embrace things that are functional and that are going to lead to better outcomes. And, you know, when we when we visualize the future, uh, we we bring that future about in many ways. And so you you can you can visualize a more negative future, and that's going to make that more likely. Or you could visualize a more positive future, and you can and you could take actions. There's all these subtle ways in which in which our, our our expectations oftentimes become reality. So I think it's very important. I associate entrepreneurship with optimism in the following way: so um, uh, an analyst looks at reality and sees what's missing, and takes that as the last word. An entrepreneur looks at reality and says, "Not only is this missing, but it can change. I can I have agency to change." Uh, and so I'm wondering if you if you're experience being an entrepreneur and surrounding yourself with entrepreneurs has made you more optimistic. Um, and I guess, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll start with that. But another question would just be like, what do you say to entrepreneurs who, who are struggling with that visualization you described? How do you give them the strength needed to sort of believe that their vision can become a reality? And then I think the, the last point is sometimes one needs to step back or quit or change course and be realistic. And so how do you balance the sort of can-do attitude with also this the attention to the the hard the hard facts of the matter? Well, you know, it's useful obviously to the fact that I grew up in Silicon Valley and the fact that I've been around so many of these big success stories and seen from the very beginning there's nothing particularly magical about the people who've built so many of the big companies that have, that have changed the world or that have solved problems in so many industries or that are curing diseases or whatnot. It's just, these are smart people who, who take a risk and they inspire others. And, and, and it takes a lot of hard work. But you know the, the reason why you get these places in our world, like in Israel and like in Silicon Valley, where this keeps happening, uh, is, is, that, is that if people are part of doing it once, they kind of see that it's possible and they could do it again. And then those people do it again. And so you get the snowball effect where, where it starts going on itself. And so you definitely build optimism. You definitely build lessons about how it works, you know, but, you know, fundamentally, I mean, this is, this is what to me is a big part of what it means to be, to be human, right? It's that, and I, I don't know if this is what it's, you know, we always talk about how the fact that we're created in the image of God is about, you know, what the, the natural consequence of that, that we usually just discuss in my life is, is the idea of, 
of, of human dignity and the fact that every person, you know, has dignity, the fact that we're, they were tied to God. But I also think there's something, there's something very much within us, which is like the urge to create and, and the, and the urge to fix the world. And, and the, and the, to me, these are also qualities that, that I, that I would tie to my Judaism as well. And, the, and that I would tie to kind of the innate nature of who we are is, is that, is that, is that it's actually like, it's, it's within each of us to create and to solve these problems. That's beautiful. And also, you're in good company with Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, who describes exactly that, that being in the divine image means being a creator, just as God is a creator. So he he goes so far as to say that within each of us, there's a unique longing connected to the uniqueness of our soul, and that that longing is the path that we have to follow in order to figure out what we can create that no one else can create. I, I like that. That, that definitely... That definitely speaks to me. The things you want to work on and want to spend your time on are what you could do that nobody else can do. And you have to kind of feel that within yourself. And it actually is so hard to, to create these, these things. And you have to spend so much of your time and so much of your, your life and your soul on it that if it wasn't something unique to you, if it wasn't something that was deeply important to you, you, you almost couldn't do it is the way I feel. Yeah, it's an, in a way, it's a, the spiritual analog to the advice that Peter Thiel gives in Zero to One, which is, you know, find the secret that you have. Instead of sort of focusing on the content of the secret, this is really getting to the root of the secret, which is the personal story or the, the personal experience. It's like almost pre-linguistic in a way. It's just that kind of that fundamental urge to create. Do you think there's a through line in all of your projects that... Um, that you could articulate that ties them all together that that speaks to the the longing in the in the soul of Joe Lonsdale. I suppose you know I have this sense that there's all these ways in which the world could be a much much better place than it is, and I, when I see things that are deeply broken, I get very frustrated, and and I and I also and I'm also very inspired by what all these smart people around me are capable of doing. And so whether whether we were you know Palantir obviously was about you know, saving the government tens of billions of dollars, protecting civil liberties, helping stop the bad guys and protecting our country and our allies. And one of my most proud days is when Israel started using a software as well to coordinate, you know, against against terrorism with the U.S. and many other countries. And then, you know, Adapar and Blend, which are multi-billion dollar company I created, Adapar is kind of after 2008, we were responding to that crisis. And okay, there's all these ways this should have obviously worked better and we could fix it. And, you know, you know similarly, Re Resilience Bio, which we created a few years ago is a, is you know, very large advanced biomanufacturers. We realized that right at the start of the pandemic, we're going to need something to, to confront the pandemic. And America and its allies are going to need that manufacturing capacity. So we raised billions of dollars and hired thousands of people. And, and you know, and then, of course, the Cicero Institute, the university, and all, and all these things were saying, here are problems in our society. Here are things that are fundamentally, there's a gap between where the world is now and where it really needs to be, where it really should be. And how do we how do we harness the best and brightest around us to go after it and, and to build and solve the problem? And so I guess I'm very biased towards action and towards towards saying there's places that things need to be fixed and we we have to fix them. What do you think is the theory of change underneath those? Is it is it the same theory of change, which is sort of like um, technology is the main lever, or is it um, culture is the main lever, or or are you sort of agnostic on on what the most important levers are? You know, I, I really I really go back. When I see our civilization, I think there's really three fundamental forces that combine to define for me like the best of Western civilization, and, and those are those are the classical values and classical wisdom which we inherited, you know, from from, from the Greeks and the Romans and, and everything there. We can go into what that means. It's the Judeo-Christian ethic and worldview, 
which we were just talking a little bit about. And, and obviously, obviously I, I do think the most important thing there is, 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 the, is the radical equality of human dignity. But I think there's a lot more you get from that, obviously, that we should go into. And then, and then, there's, and then there's the enlightenment. And the enlightenment uh, combining with these kind of creates this rational mechanism for how to run society to let good ideas win. So, so, with, so with these values, with these principles, like science alone is not enough, right? With just the Enlightenment, you get the terror of the French Revolution, you get horrible things. But, but, but the Enlightenment combined with these other values creates a framework where you can let good ideas win and bad ideas lose. And that's, then that gives you progress. It, it, with, with the right values and with a framework to let ideas compete, uh, you get better ideas winning over time. And so the, 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 the framework is that a free society underpinned by these values uh, is able is able to have good ideas win and bad ideas lose is able to to push things ahead to make everyone more prosperous and and so so I guess that that's like my basic framework and then and then you want to innovate within that framework and create new things and test new things and and, and push them forward in positive ways wonderful answer and um, you just got me thinking so in the realm of let's say science and tech it seems relatively easy to know what a good idea is versus a bad idea right a good idea cures someone in medicine and a bad idea doesn't. A, a good idea gets the rocket ship to Mars, a bad idea gets it you know, crashing in the ocean or whatever. Um, but when it comes to things that are sort of more cultural or moral um, virtues about how we should live together, it seems harder to evaluate what makes for a good idea or a bad idea, or maybe you would disagree with that framing. But sort of how do you, how do you apply the scientific method to things that are, that are a little bit more broad or complicated than just um, a, a, a certain output that you're selecting for when that, or maybe. You- yeah. I, and, and I, I would, I would say, I would say without getting into anything political per se, that this gets to the more interesting, positive parts of politics, you know, to, 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 to me, there should be healthy disagreements around what society should look like in a, in a, in a, in a general healthy way about, about these types of questions. But then, but then, so so I think what I try to focus on is I try to focus on areas of agreement, Zohar. So, so we may disagree about exactly how people should live together and how they should be punished and how much they should be punished, for example. But what we don't disagree about, uh, if, if we want to have good ideas win and bad ideas lose, maybe we don't disagree on on the whole that once they're already, let's say, in in, in prison or in the criminal justice system, we want to make sure that they're treated in a way where they're likely to come out with a job and they're likely not to want to go back to prison, right? And, and, so, and so you could actually test ideas for how you run prisons and probation and parole. And this is whether, and try, again, trying to stay away from the politics part, whether you're on the left or the right or anything, uh, in, our, in our society, we, can all, we have shared goals where we want these people to have jobs when they come out. We, we want these people who experience that to, to be less likely to go back to it. And, and, you, and you can test those ideas, right? You can actually have systems that measure it and test it. And one, th- one thing that I think our society is really failing at in lots of areas is there's lots of areas where there's no mechanism for good ideas to win. There's no accountability, right? There's no, there's no incentives. And, and, and so to me, those are the areas that are the most kind of decadent and broken. And, 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 then, and then you want to actually put in this kind of free society framework to have mechanisms for, for ways that ideas can compete that we all agree should be competing. And, and so, so in as much as there are, there's healthy politics, we can disagree on some of the, some of the, like exactly what we want, but I think it's amazing how much we actually agree on that we're still not even applying it in, in these areas. In the biblical prophets, we often get a combination of sort of doom and gloom and hope often in the same paragraph, right? There's a, there's a thesis of decadence and decline, and there's also a thesis of we can turn this around. Have you found yourself more drawn to the decadence and decline narrative of late, or has it sort of been the same? 
Um, and then because you identify as an optimist, how do you hold how do you hold the perception of things are deeply broken with a sense of they can be better? I think that's like the nature of society over time. I think maybe as a very young person, your first instinct is to see decadence and decline and say, oh my God, everything's broken. This is the worst. This is the worst. And how could it be this bad? And then I think you actually maybe come to realize there's a dialectic where there's things that are working and advancing and there's things that are breaking and declining. And those two are always at odds. And there's, they're always kind of like the counterpoints always there. And what's, what's amazing about the last few hundred years is how much we've had progress in, in, in many areas, unlike in anything else. Now, now you might say, perhaps we haven't had as much progress spiritually. And perhaps there's, perhaps there's, you know, even in the last few hundred years, when you have so much progress in so many material ways and with health and with the well-being of so many people, maybe, maybe there was a counterpoint where we were losing some things. But, but I, overall, I'm optimistic that we have, in general, advanced things very dramatically. And, 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 and yes, there, there's huge, there's huge areas of possible decline, of possible decay that we have to confront. But I'm actually quite optimistic that there are good answers to these things. And so part of our job as leaders in society is to confront the decay, confront the decline, and, and apply the lessons, you know, and the wisdom of our civilization to, to fix them. And so I, I, think, I think if we apply the wisdom we have from those three traditions that we, we mentioned, I think there's a lot we can fix. Do you think the scientific method that you alluded to before, the values of the Enlightenment, are sort of here to stay? That would be the Francis Fukuyama thesis, that sort of they are at a meta level the best I the best idea. And so they've won and, you know, uh, they can be stamped out in a particular time and place, but overall, like humanity is committed to that, that way of doing things now. Overall, the Republic of Science, which is how Polanyi describes the way good ideas and versus bad ideas compete in this networks in science. Overall, like the frameworks of markets, uh, you know, like the, the come, which are very tied into the enlightenment and, and then very tied into science and, and good ideas winning, you know, those are just so obviously the correct correct way of doing things on some level that they're going to be always there. Uh, you know, I think overall, however, Judeo Christianity is extremely important as an input. And I think if you if you if you give up God, or if you give up the wisdom, you know, of you know of, of our religion, or if, if you if you or if you even frankly if you even give up the virtues of our civilization, if you give up the idea of courage uh, and, and of the other the other virtues you know, justice and temperance and wisdom, uh, you know, I think we're going to be in a bad place. And so I think, I think a lot of what happens, at least in my view, we have something really amazing informing us from these different, different traditions. And I think all of them are necessary. And I think, I think, I think at some point in society, we're always going to come back to some of those just because there's just so much we've, we've got from each of them. And I think without any of them, I think you're in trouble. Yeah, that resonates very much. So the way that I th think about that conflict is there was this sort of ancient ethical system, which was called virtue ethics, which is really focused on forming character of soul. And what happened in modernity, uh, because of the success of the scientific revolution, the success of industrialization and so on, is that we switched from that paradigm to utilitarianism, which is the reigning ethical paradigm of our day. And utilitarianism has a lot of things to be said in its, on its behalf. One is the focus on impact. Uh, virtue ethics doesn't really care about how much impact you have. And I think the other part of utilitarianism is um, maximizing pleasure, minimizing pain. In virtue ethics, pleasure isn't necessarily the thing you're going for. You're going for this thing called human flourishing, 
which is a little bit broader than pleasure, but might involve some element of suffering and then working through that suffering and coming to a better sense of self as opposed to just... Well, I mean, obviously, all <laughs> of us need that in our lives. I had a really painful experience with my trainer this morning for an hour, and that's, that's a very short example. But you know, in, 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 in general in life, to, to, to flourish, you need, you need to, you shouldn't be maximizing short-term, <laughs> you probably shouldn't be maximizing short-term pleasure. But I, I, I guess, so, 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 so utilitarianism is not, is, I'd imagine is also still about longer-term goals as well, but maybe, but, but, but it maybe doesn't have the same, the same focus on virtue and in, in, in society or, or how, how is that different? That's a good point. You know, I, I don't want to paint a straw man of utilitarianism. I, I have a lot of envy of utilitarianism and I think there's a lot of good that's come from it. I just, Maybe in terms of like portfolio theory, I want to diversify my ethical bets. <laughs> and I feel like maybe we're we're overextended on the utilitarianism today. We need a little bit more virtue ethics. That would be my pitch. No, we de we definitely we definitely are. This is something in my own life that I struggle with because I've I've started a large number of companies and run a big fund, and and I'm working on all these different goals that are important to me. And uh, and then I I really you know I have we just had our fourth daughter at home here, and. Uh, I do spend a lot of time with my girls, but it, but it's always just it, for me personally. It's always a, a struggle to to balance to balance everything and to have the spiritual side of things healthy with all the goals in my life. There's a book uh, by Russ Roberts that's coming out. It's called Wild Problems, and he uh, he goes through Darwin's decision whether or not to marry, and he's got his pros on one side and his cons on the other side. And basically, if you're just reading the list rationally, it seems like his cons outweigh his pros. But then he decides at the end, he writes QED, I'm going to get married. <laughs> and it sounds like um, the reason why he moves in that direction is because um, he aspires to be the kind of person who is married. And so that's a different category of thing than the things you put on the list. Like, who do you aspire to be? I think that's the kind of question that virtue ethicist is focused on. Whereas a utilitarian is just like, is it good for me or is it good for society? What's the cost-benefit ratio? But once you introduce this thing called aspiration, it's like a multidimensional problem. It's it's no longer just uh, if keeping the self constant, what will you like tomorrow? It's like the self is going to change tomorrow and do you want to be that self tomorrow? That's very interesting. I think, I think a lot of times we don't fully appreciate why certain things longer term are healthy for us or for society. They're kind of this kind of like the, the traditional Russell Kirk, you know, conservative argument that there's all these, there's all this ancient wisdom in the in in, in getting married and in and in how we run things and then the choices we make and why they're run a certain way. And I think I think I think sometimes we we don't find out until later what why they were so wise. So you've mentioned Judeo-Christian values as well as Greco-Roman ones, and um, for some people those are a, a happy synthesis. And for other people, they're in deep conflict. Um, there's a, a lot of different ways of sort of defining what Athens is versus what Jerusalem is, to to use the pairing from from Leo Strauss. But how do you think about what Judaism or Christianity has to offer that's missing in the Greeks, and what do the Greeks offer that's missing in the Jews? And is it just a happy marriage or a marriage of convenience, or or is there an, an element of fundamental struggle between those? You know, in my mind, at least the way they're symbolized, there's definitely some sort of struggle. Um, I, I was very much so. So I was very much into kind of the Nietzschean, Ubermensch idea as like a 13, 14 year old, right? And there's just 
it's very clear if you look at how the world works and you look at history that it's extremely important that you educate the top few percent of society and that the top few percent of society by natural talent, that you know what Cicero called the natural aristocracy, uh, is just it's just hugely influential in, in terms of advancing things that benefit everyone and in terms of running things and in terms of just how world affairs work. And so there's this interesting and very important idea about the natural elite. Like when you look at how government should be balanced, you know, Cicero, and, and this is copied later in England, of course, you had the natural, what's called the natural aristocracy on one side, and you have the commons on the other side checking each other. And you kind of want the laws to be written by this elite natural aristocracy, and you want it to be checked by the commons. And, and so, so you have all these ideas of like, of like how important like the elite are. And then if you follow some of that philosophy to its extreme, you kind of realize this is also something that was inspiring, like the Nazis and eugenics and all these other stuff. And as a Jew, you wait, whoa, wait a second. Like what's, what, what's going on here? What am I, what, what am I missing? Right. And then you realize that there's actually really deep wisdom. That's more, much more Judeo-Christian that really informs again, the, 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 the radical equality of human dignity and the importance of all human life and the importance of like, you know, in our society, I think we do a very good job of taking care of the least well-offs. Like our public schools are obsessed with like, if kids are developmentally disabled, how do we, how do we give them, how do we bring them back up and give them opportunity? And, and if you're just focused on, on growing GDP and, and like, and like innovating and, and beating China and, and advancing the world, you're, you're going to mostly focus all your resources on that top 1% or 2% or 3%. If you're, if you're focused on a Judeo-Christian worldview, you're going to, you're going to give a lot of, of resources and help and care to the least well off and to those really in need and making sure you're pulling them up. And, 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 and I realize this is way oversimplified, but I'm just kind of, kind of like going back to like the core of it. Like there's this, you know, in, in the Roman side, there's like this courage and, and aggression and like overconfidence. And, 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 and I agree some of that exists in Judaism as well in different ways, but I, but I tend, I tend to see these as oversimplified kind of, kind of views where they're, they're, they're very much pushing different parts of our beings. And, and like, the truth is both sides are true. If you have a society that doesn't take care of the bottom, it's, it's brutal and it's, and it's not what I want to be a part of and it's, and it's missing God. And if you have a society, which frankly, I think our public schools oftentimes do today, they're only focused on the bottom. You're actually missing the things that are going to advance society and make it functional and, and make it really positive. And I, and, and I, I do think those two traditions come differently from overemphasizing, you know, Julius Caesar versus, versus, you know, I guess, I don't know who I'd represent on the Jewish side of it, but, but, but there, but, but, you know, they are in conflict. I think that dialectic you described fits also within Judaism in, for example, the treatment of kings in the Bible. So you have, from one point of view, um, the kings are sort of chosen by God to represent the divine will. So that's that seems good. Like that seems pro-elitist in a way, uh, Nietzschean. And then um, most of the kings turn out to be super corrupt and sinful. And um, the, the institution of kingship really doesn't last very long. I always read this as the Bible, like secretly telling you how bad kings are, right? And that you don't want kings in general, even King David. I always thought they were like secretly biased against him. Yeah, I think that's. I think that there's sort of different voices or different perspectives, and so that that voice is certainly there. Like the book of, the book of Samuel, is uh, called the book of Samuel. It's not called the book of Saul, right? Uh, or the book of David, because the protagonist is the prophet. It's sort. I think. I think the whole book is really saying like we'd be much better off if we, if we were ruled by prophets rather than kings. But yep. um, that that's, that was always my take on it. Was Judaism is like 
always like quietly like for the masses and the little people and again against these rulers, you know, and again again against the the, the wealthy kind of ruling class. So how do you balance particularism and universalism, which is another dialectic that I think of when I think of Greeks versus Jews, for example? I mean, the Jewish people are a people um, who has no compunction, really, or uh, sort of putting obligations to one's own people before obligations to other people's. And then the Greek ideal of being a cosmopolitan or a citizen of the world finds in all human beings rationality and therefore you you don't really owe more to your your neighbor than someone who lives far away because you're all equally human this is no this is very much this is very much a dialectic as well it's an important and you know I think part of our humanity is to care most about our family and about our friends and about our community and to have duty to it and there's something I know a lot of people think it's just like atavistic scary thing, but I think there's actually something very positive, again, to avoid politics, but I think there's something very positive in some forms of nationalism and some forms of, of pride in your civilization and, and, and believing in it. Just because like we talked about with optimism and pessimism, if you believe in something and you visualize it positively and you contribute to it positively and you inspire people to have confidence in it, it's, it's going to likely have a much better outcome. Uh, you know, and, 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 it's, and it's also just I think it's, I, I'm very proud to have a family and to be close to my family and that I would fight and die for my family and sacrifice myself for my family. And I think that's, that's, that's actually a really healthy thing. And then at the same time, as a leader in society, as you have broader responsibilities, uh, you, you obviously have to be really careful to make sure that, you're, that you are, that you do have that universal value for everything. Because I mean, obviously rationally, you know, the, you, I mean, it's always the example you give if there's like, you know, a village in Southeast Asia that's going to be destroyed or you, or you could... Like you know, you know, daughter lose lose your daughter, or, or even lose her your daughter's arm or something. Like you, you know, a lot of people, if if no one was watching, would quietly choose to destroy the village. Of course, and that's I think that's that's very human. That's how we evolve, and that's very natural. And that's you know, it's it's a very it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a very tough thing to have both of those. And I, yeah, but I don't think there's anything wrong with with the impulse to to fight for and protect our family and our friends. I think it's it's a healthy thing. I think you're you you would accept the label of, as a libertarian. Uh. I think the problem just briefly with the label libertarian is that it's associated with like an extreme ideology that tends to not intersect well with, with uh, the real world. And so I, I, I very strongly appreciate the values of a free society, but I like to apply them in the real world in realist ways to accomplish good for all rather, rather than for the sake of the ideology itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that does make, that does make sense. Cause I guess where I was going with the question and maybe you've already answered it is just how you sort of square the American aspect of your commitment or your identity, the nationalism that you alluded to before, with this sort of um, tendency amongst those who embrace free markets um, t- tend to be more internationalist in their focus. Um, a lot of prominent libertarian thinkers, for example, on immigration, so you know, would even would even use the phrase "open borders." To yeah, no, I think how- I think you can understand the functional parts of a free society and apply them to help the US. I don't, I'm not sure I'd call myself America first because that's associated with all sorts of other kind of negative connotations and whatnot. But but if but, but in as much as I want to fight first for my family and the people around me, and, I, and if, for example, if you were running the US, you'd have a duty to the world, but first to your also to your people. And, and, and you know, there's, there's ways in which free markets, if they're totally free, um, are, are are sometimes you know I think we've seen in the last thirty years you've made people 
around the world a lot wealthier. I think that's a very positive thing, but you've also maybe had some of the working class in the US had a tougher time uh, because they had to compete with the rest of the world. And, and so th these are very tough trade-offs. I think overall, it's probably moral universally that just because someone was born in India or China or, or somewhere else, uh, they, you know, if they're willing to work hard, they shouldn't have to be you know, so many times poorer than someone who's not working as hard in the US. So I, so I understand universally, but, but yeah, I would, I'd probably like generally embrace those sorts of free markets. Well, maybe, maybe the US could adjust them slightly to help out those most in need here. So, you know, a, a little bit, so you'd kind of tilt it in favor of your own people is, is your job as a leader. And so I, I probably would have tilted it a little more than we did towards our own people. Another critique I sometimes hear about globalization, it's almost an aesthetic critique. And, and I've seen it on both the right and the left. It's this kind of the same critique, which is that internationalism homogenizes culture. So you go to any city anywhere in the world, and it's pretty much like any other city anywhere else in the world. And so this sort of ethos of efficiency that's lifting that's lifting people out of poverty also seems to be diminishing the things that make us different in favor of sort of the things that have the least amount of hiccups. Um, and so then you, you get these uh, intersections where there's Starbucks and McDonald's and ExxonMobil and whatever. So how do you think about... Um, I mean, I mean, it's really sad in a way. And you think about when you read ancient history, speaking of the Greeks, like every single one of these city-states were like little city-states, you know, along the along along Greece and along the islands. And they each had their own, like the Corinthians had their the poems, and the Corinthian columns, right? And you see the different columns and the poetry and the culture and the food and the funerary practices. And I mean, I'm not saying all of them were great, Sparta. We all read about the things, things Sparta did with leaving out the damaged kids and stuff to die and all sorts of stuff. But it's, but it's fascinating, like how rich each of these little cultures were everywhere in the world. And the same is true all over, everywhere in the world, all over the Americas, all over China with so many different cultures. Like France wasn't France. It was, it was, you know, the, you know, there's different things in Wales and different parts of Wales that had different traditions, different parts of Scotland with different traditions. And, and it really was this kind of rich tapestry that's just so fascinating. And, and I, I love the old different accents when you go to the certain rural parts of the UK that are fading away right now. And, uh, and even, you know, sorry, not to go on too much, but even like, even the, there's like different Jews in different parts of the Middle East. They're like really small communities that have been there for 2000 years, right? With their own very unique, you know, different disagreements and practices and traditions. And it's, it is really sad to me that we're kind of living through the destruction effectively of, of tens of thousands of these, of these extraordinary cultures that, that are no longer going to exist in the same way, thanks to modernity. And, and that that is a trade-off, and I'm not sure if there's a way to make that trade-off without losing some of this. And I'm not. I, I think it's. I think when we see what we've gained from our journey, like to, to go back, you know, 2,000 years ago to a to a 22, 23 year old life expectancy, or even to go back 100 years to 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 a you know 50 year life expectancy, and, and everything else that implies. I mean, my, you know, my, one of my again one of my favorite presidents from, from 100 years ago, Calvin Coolidge. I mean, his 16-year-old son was in great shape playing tennis, and you probably know, and, and got a little scratch on his foot, and it got infected, and he just died in misery for the next three months in pain and eventually passing away in the White House with the best medicine we had in the 1920s. And, and so, so you, have, you have this very brutal, very rough world that has so much richness, and, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm not, I don't think any of us are willing to lose multiple of our children or to go through the pain of not having modern dentistry and medicine in order to experience that richness again ourselves. But it, it is sad that there does seem to be a little bit of a trade-off there. 
Yeah, well, if, if it's a trade-off, then I guess it's just a trade-off that we have to accept. But do you think that there's a way to sort of preserve some of the aesthetic richness of specificity while also modernizing? And if so, like, what would you do to preserve culture while also accelerating? I mean, a lot of these, of- a lot of these changes are just modern media and content, right? You're not going to say, like, no watching Star Trek for people in this part of Scotland because I love their accents and and I and I really and I really like how they communicate, and I really don't want them to have to start all hearing my shows because then they're not going to have that when I visit anymore. Um, and 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 you know, I, I guess you could. I guess in some places like Jerusalem still forces you to build a certain way, which I like. I think that's really cool that you have to kind of build the traditional way in Jerusalem. So I think there's there's certain things you could do aesthetically, but in, in terms of keeping the the religions, the food, the cultures, I mean, I don't think you're going to want to ban people from having whatever food they want. If they happen to start wanting pizza, that, you know, done done in Chicago style in a certain way in the Mediterranean. Like, I don't think you could tell them, sorry, that that restaurant that's thriving there is is, is banned because you're because we love your ancient tradition here of your other food. So it, it's, it's tough, right? I think I think I think I think it's really hard. I think these cultural things with the internet and with modern content and, and frankly with with markets. And I, I I agree the efficiency thing. Like maybe you subsidize certain cultural things. Like I would definitely be a fan of subsidizing cultural things if it kept them alive in a healthy way. Like, and that's that's a choice not only governments but communities can make, and communities can make with their governments. And depending on your politics, there's different ways of doing this, like more top down or more bottom up. So, so yeah, hundred percent agree with 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 money for preserving culture. And and you know, I think there's things even where I've done things like that where I I really I really love. Thomas Jefferson's architecture of democracy. And I, and I really love the traditions we took from Greek and Roman, you know, at building and, and then we put into our early nation. And, uh, and so that's something that I've subsidized in different ways with neoclassical architecture that to me speaks of truth and beauty and speaks of the values of, of, of our country. And, and that's a cultural thing I don't want to fully lose. So I, I think all of us could take these cultural things we care about and try to subsidize them in different ways. But but yeah, it, it's, 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 I think regardless, you get homogenization with modern technology. I think, I think it's hard not to. That's a great segue to a question that I've wanted to ask you about your new university, which is liberal arts. So just full disclosure here, you know, I've spent <laughs> at least 12 years in liberal arts institutions, um, you know, maybe higher ed. So, you know, four years at Brown, BAMA, classics, Judaic studies and intellectual history, four years at Oxford doing a PhD in theology <laughs> and four years at the Jewish Theological Seminary studying uh, rabbinics, Talmud and ancient Jewish texts. And from a utilitarian point of view, liberal arts are getting uh, destroyed by STEM, you know, for all kinds of reasons. And I I think uh, certainly humanities teachers bear some responsibility for that. But how do you think about the value or the purpose of liberal arts education today and going forward? Sort of, do you do you think it's just an instrumental case for this develops your thinking and so it will translate into anything you want to do later on? Or is there a reason to subsidize it, even if it's kind of useless, because it gets us to virtue and it gets us to culture memory and certain things that, if we're just you know churning out engineers and and MBAs, we're gonna we're gonna be impoverished as a result. Yeah, I mean it has to be both to do this correctly. This is not this is not purely utilitarian, right? I mean I think I think we tend to focus in this day and age on the utilitarian aspects, which I think are quite powerful as well. I think. You know, in order in order to have the sorts of leaders that are going to confront and solve issues in our society, you need you need to retrain people to think independently, 
uh, you, need, you need to give them intellectual courage and to practice intellectual courage, to practice speaking out for themselves, to practice going against the grain. I, I think there's been a lot of things lately where you're taught you're supposed to virtue signal by agreeing with the things that are the right things to think. And we've had a lot of times in history where this has happened. This is not at all unique to the current moment, but it, but it is an ag, it is at an extreme, I would argue, in the last five years where it's really peaking that you just have to virtue signal. And I think we have to once again, you know, put back in the traditions, you know, of, of the West and frankly traditions of Judaism, which is which is to debate and, and disagree about things and to be able to do that. And you know, be able to do that with intellectual humility that you may be wrong, but but that everyone else has the humility to listen to you and that, that they may be wrong as well. And 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 that, that that's obviously going to lead to stronger leaders, to better leaders, to 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 a more prosperous society that confronts its problems head on. And, and calls out the issues uh, that we're facing. And, and, and you know, but there's just so many things where we just are not dealing with them with courage. We're just, you know, this again, we'll try to avoid avoid the policy stuff, but there's just so many broken things right now we could be dealing with in smarter ways if we listened to other views and we tested ideas and we iterated and tried different ideas. But but yeah, I, I totally agree with you that just the, this virtue in general and, and, the, and the liberal arts for the sake of themselves is part of having a rich fabric of society where you, you know I want to live in a civilization where where many of the leaders and, and many of the people in our society appreciate these ideas and, and appreciate what it means to to be human on a much deeper level, which which we're you know, which you know I think we're missing right now in many cases. Hmm. I'm going to play a little bit of a counter argument to myself, even though I do love the humanities and <laughs> feel tremendous gratitude for for the. Uh, material that they've given me to work with over a lifetime. So the the, the counter argument is uh, from George Steiner, who lived through the Holocaust and was a humanities scholar. And he has this line, he says, the humanities don't humanize. See, he looks at Europe after World War II and World War One, and he's like, listen, the Nazis listened to Schubert, um, and they could hear the trains taking Jews away, you know, right outside the concert hall. There's sort of no causal link between loving beauty or even loving truth and being a, a person that has the the courage, let's say, to stand up to the regime or just to call it out or whatever. So, you know, without saying, therefore, we should ban humanities, <laughs> um, it seems like if we want to actually humanize people, we need to do more than just say, here's a novel by James Joyce, you know, what did you think about it? So how do how would we if we were sitting in a room with like the most talented people trying to work on the culture change and raising the, let's say the average virtue per capita <laughs> in, in the U S like how, what, what institutions or mechanisms do you think would have the greatest effect? So it's always dangerous to argue about Nazi Germany because you're right. That's always like the ultimate, ultimate argument that things get to when you're angry at your, at your enemies. Um, but because you brought it up, I think I, I think I think going to that time, I think you had a very intolerant academy for at least a decade, if not a couple of decades, it was going that direction, right? So so people may have been hearing Schubert and Schmidt and all sorts of fascinating philosophers from from one side and reading Nietzsche and whatnot. Uh, but but I don't I, but at the same time, you were kicking out scholars and, and, and people were very afraid to speak out, you know, and, 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 and to have different points of view in that society at that time for a while. So I, th I think I think what you need to nurture is you need to nurture an intellectually tolerant society 
that, 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 that has intellectual humility and that lets you debate things. I, I, my understanding of Nazi Germany and, and the, and the time leading up to it and the way the universities worked is that you actually, you actually weren't allowed to argue against a lot of these ideas. And so I, I think if you have a society where you nurture intellectual freedom and, and where you don't have one group canceling other groups and, and saying that they're beyond the pale and therefore they're not allowed or, or they're, they're, they're unacceptable. Or if you, so it's, you, you, right now what we have is we have most of our, of our departments and major universities, they're conquered by people with a certain view and they very carefully screen to make sure people who disagree with them are not, are not allowed in. And so if you have certain views, you're not allowed in. And that, and that, that to me is very, very dangerous because that sounds a lot like a society a hundred years ago that, that where people were listening to Schubert and hearing the trains because they had been trained very strongly that certain views were not to be breached, right? And, and you get, you, I'll, I'll take it a step further. Um, there's certain professions uh, that are similar to a hundred years ago where, you, where, they're, where they're very likely to follow orders and very likely not to think for themselves. So you, you know which profession was, was by far the most likely in terms of, in terms of the major ones to, to, be, to be Nazi in the 1930s. Was it, it doctors? It was actually, exactly. It was the doctors, which is the same group now that's, that's very, very likely to just go along with all the, all the, the woke ideology. And so, so, so you really need a society that, that, that trains people to push back. And I'm not saying there's not wisdom to some of the woke stuff or whatever. But I am saying it's just it's I think it's very dangerous when you when you when you can't when you have to discuss things carefully and in private or if you're not permitted into certain professions or academies if you if you don't agree with the mainstream view and I th I think that's much more the echo that I'd push against from then. Yeah, your your take reminds me of Hannah Arendt, who you know wrote many books on totalitarianism and trying to understand what causes it. And at one point in the origins of totalitarianism, she describes it as organized loneliness which is just um, very intense, right? She's talking about people at a rally in a crowd, and not only do they not have the ability to say what, they're, what they have inside of them, but they don't even know what's inside of them because they've become sort of so attached to the crowd. So I, I always think of liberalism in her defense of it as some, try, some attempt to uncover the individual perspective uh, that doesn't just become part of what the consensus is. And I, I think that also brings us back to entrepreneurship, and um, and being created in the image of God, that somehow if both both of those connects very much to some sense of the individuality as incommensurate, incommensurate. So how how do we nurture a culture that appreciates individuality and and dissent? Um, <laughs> it's a it's a tough one because every individual every individual you know wants a voice, and so when you give somebody a voice. Um, in, inherent in that is another individual saying, well, you, therefore you silenced me. Now I don't feel that I can express my voice. So that gets, it ends up getting framed as zero sum, even though maybe the goal is to, to create a society where all individuals feel that they can be fully individual. I, th I think you want everyone to feel they could be individual and they could speak and express themselves. Um, when you get to a philosophy that values safetyism in, in, in intellectual endeavors, when you when you try to protect offense, that actually ends up silencing the most people because when, when you make people afraid about how they might make somebody feel by expressing themselves and expressing their own truths, uh, they're expressing their own points of view, um, you, you basically stop them from learning, first of all, if there's something that's wrong because they, they don't get a chance to put it out there. And, and you make people very scared to express things. And so what you have today is you have this weird idea everywhere about 
and you go to all these HR departments and, and it's like, we're going to create psychological safe spaces. Like not, not in my companies. I don't want you to be psychologically safe. If you're not, if you don't feel psychologically safe and you're that intellectually weak, I want you to go work somewhere else because I need people who are intellectually able to deal with arguments and deal with debates. And it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's just gotten to be comical to me, but also like really scary what it, what it does to our dialogue and in, 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 in terms of creating this kind of loneliness where, where people, and, and actually it's really scary. It forces people to go down to these like quiet groups where they talk to each other by themselves, which I think is very unhealthy, right? So if you're not allowed to express yourself in public and because you might be offending people in certain ways or certain things are off out of bounds, you actually create these, these weird underground subgroups, which I think are reminiscent of totalitarian societies. And so you're getting, I think, I think we accidentally by, by, by putting some of these ideas in, into place that weren't challenged that came out of our universities, such as not offending people such as microaggressions. I mean, I think everyone should have to experience lots of microaggressions to be stronger. That, 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 would, be, that would be my opposite contrarian take on it. That'd be like a healthy thing in liberal arts universities. You're constantly challenged with microaggressions that, that challenge your view, that offend you, that make you think differently. And then until you, until you become so strong that you rise above them, they don't really bother you anymore. Like that, that, would be the, that would be the better framework to use. Nice. So we had McCarthyism in the past and we had it while fighting a cold war in which we were like, totalitarianism is bad. <laughs> In fact, uh, one of my favorite uh, anecdotes on that is Ernst Kantorowicz was a, a German-Jewish uh, refugee who fled the Holocaust. Uh, he was an anti-communist. And when he got to Berkeley, they made him sign a, a pledge condemning communism, and he wouldn't sign it because he said, you know, I, I know what totalitarianism is, and this is bad. Um, and even though I hate communists, like I hate signing this for it more. So I guess the question is like, it's a twofold question. One is, why is this happening in the West if the West does stand for values of open-mindedness and productive trial and error and, and all of that? Like, how is it happening here? And then the second question is, um, isn't this just inevitable? Isn't this just a function of sort of fundamental human conflict where one affinity group um, decides what the terms of the debate are and other groups are, you know, can only speak if they speak within those terms and otherwise that, that, they that is human. Outside. That is the human tribal instinct, right? So you get effectively, you know, Richard Dawkins, I think quite accurately calls it like the woke mind virus. That's what Elon's been using because he got that from Dawkins. Uh, and it really is, you get these things that are effectively mind viruses and that, that bring out our natural tribal instincts about, about, you know, imposing our views, imposing what's allowed and what's not allowed. And, you know, the wonder of the liberal West and of, and of classic liberal tradition was to push back against these natural human impulses and to say, no, actually, we're going to have these ideas of, of free speech and of liberty and, and frameworks that are, you know, totally, totally different than the natural instinct that you, that you do get to speak up, you do get to criticize you do get to criticize the king, the leader, et cetera, which is, you know, un, un, unheard of in other parts of the world. And, and you know, it, obviously, historically, whatever you can't criticize, that's who's in charge. And there's these people who are trying to be in charge right now by saying you can't criticize their ideas and you can't go against, you know, various ideas, which I won't offend people by mentioning here. Uh, but, but it's, 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 you know, it's, it's basically, it's basically my duty as a free citizen similar to the, to, the, to the Jew you mentioned who wouldn't sign the anti-communist document because it's totalitarian. It's my duty to speak up as I do uh, about some of these shibboleths 
to show that they actually don't rule me and that all, none of us should respect the fact that we can't speak about certain things. So, you know, it, you know, I, I, you know, I call Black Lives Matter a horrible Marxist organization and everyone's like, oh, you're being racist. And I'm not racist. And it turned out, of course, it was a corrupt Marxist organization. But, you know, you weren't really allowed to say that because I was like, you're breaking the shibboleth rule. And, and there's, there's things like this that I think it's everyone's duty to speak up against them. Same way that guy wouldn't sign the thing against communism. Because when you're told in society not to speak, that's, that, that's when courage is necessary. And that's when we have to show that the liberal tradition is that we will speak and we will violate your rules. What do you think it, it's going to take to get us to a place as a society where the norm is more of this open debate rather than this sort of um, leading with I'm offended and here's why you're a terrible person? Well, this is why we're starting, you know, University of Austin or UATX, as we call it, is, you know, I'd like to have a top 10 university with people who are influential, uh, the others follow amongst our elite that are building the top organizations or running our government institutions that have these values where they, where they embrace freedom and they, and they, and they speak and they feel their duty to speak up, you know, against things that they think are wrong and they feel the duty not to be silenced. And, and, you know, I think the more, it just takes a small number of courageous people for others to see and others to realize that the emperor has no clothes, that these people aren't actually in charge of our society and that we can't let them terrorize us like they are. And then we have to, and to, and to get more and more people speaking out and violating it. And it's right now, right now it's still on the fringes. And I think the big institutions have done a really good job of kind of painting it as if everyone's going along who's, who's responsible uh, but I, th I think you're starting to see more cracks in that facade and you're starting to see more courage against it. So, so I hope we can get more of that. Universities are often described as marketplaces of ideas in, um, in a climate, obviously, where, <laughs> where a person can express a view and shut down any kind of commerce, if you want to use that metaphor, um, is that is that metaphor still one we want to hold up and aspire to, or do we need a different metaphor for thinking about what a university could be, or maybe we want to say the the marketplace of ideas needs other institutions to help it? It can't just be a market on its own. Like, why a university? You know, there are many there are many ways that you can create places and, and opportunities for people to come together and seek truth together. Why why a, why a university? You know, a, you know, university holds an important place in the history of the West. Um, it, it's, it's definitely a marketplace of ideas. It's also, it's, I mean, it's also a place where, where, where children are molded into, into, into conscientious citizens, into leaders who, who will come out and, and, and help lead society and have the, have the background they need to be courageous leaders and understanding the virtues and understanding the, the frameworks and the great ideas that shape the world they're stepping into. Uh, it, it, it's traditionally a place of moral action I don't always agree with moral action coming out of our average universities these days, but I think it's a healthy dynamic to have moral action uh, tied to university. That's something that's always been, uh, and it's also it's, you know it's also a vocational place, you know, which is really important as well. And so you get you get these kind of multiple roles of what these places are, but 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 done right, you you are training the citizens who are going to run your country, and you know. It, to me, it's very important to have competition right now because what's happened is the universities have mostly doubled or tripled in terms of the size of their administrations. Like there's more administrators at Yale than there are students right now, literally more administrators than students. And these administrators by all sorts of studies, Sam Abrams did a great study, are, are far more ideologically extreme uh, than the professors even. 
uh, on the left and, and, and they're far more about shutting down ideas. And so to me, it was important to have competition to show that it's possible to be different because when, when you have nothing that's different uh, and you have nothing in the top that's really standing up for the right values, you know, people start to think that it's not possible. And, you know, that's why one of the reasons America was so important is America, America showed the world what's possible with a very different system that's better. And so as an entrepreneur, when you're building, you, you're, you're saying, okay, let's, let's teach everyone what's possible. Let's, let's lift up these lives with this university in particular, but let's also teach everyone and show everyone else and influence them more in our direction. And, I, and it's, it's clear that that's possible if we do it right. This is kind of an annoying question in a way, so feel free to reject it. But one thing that I often hear is, let's say that tribalism is its, or sorry, being anti-tribal is itself a tribe. So like if you would, if you would go to the place where all the, all the people who reject their communities of origin hang out, like they all have a lot in common. And you might say something similar about the sort of free speech crowd or the marketplace of ideas crowd that although there's a, uh, a, a rhetorical support for diversity of viewpoint that in fact, like it all ge- generally heterodoxy within some center. Um, the same, by the way, applies to the word pluralism. Like I identify as a pluralist, um, which I think means that there are many truths, there are many values that we should accept and that we're going to have to balance. And there's also many ways to get there. But like, if I say I'm a pluralist, the kinds of people that are going to be attracted to that signal are going to probably agree with me on a lot of things and be pretty homogenous with me relative to those who are like, ah, pluralism is bad. We need more tribalism. So maybe that's okay. And everybody just reverts back to some tribe, including the tribe of the tribalists. But to the extent that you really want viewpoint diversity, how do you overcome the fact that this term has become a kind of signal of a particular kind of subgroup? No, it is a signal and it's not. I think I, I agree it's human nature to kind of revert back into tribes and and people get busy and you don't have time to think of everything for yourself and you start to go along with what your tribe's thinking of my tribe likes Bitcoin, then I'm gonna like Bitcoin because that's because I agree with them and everything else, right? And so you definitely have some of that energy. Now, now let's let, let's look for a second though. I mean the, the people who are having this debate, it's Joe Rogan who backed Bernie Sanders. I mean, I don't agree with him at all on, on quite a few things like that. It's Barry Weiss, uh, my friend starting the university with me. She came from the New York Times. She's, you know, feminist. She and her wife are about to have a child in the next month. Um, you know, very different perspectives on the world. And, you know, we brought, like, to the university to speak. We brought a trans activist who was open-minded to, to have a discussion and debate. We brought uh, Kathleen, you know, Stock, who's a radical feminist, who... I probably don't agree with very much, you know, she's a kind of a moderate left radical feminist, but she actually got in trouble for, for having different, different views herself on the trans issue. And so we brought them to discuss. It was actually an amazing discussion and lots of debate, but they ended up hugging afterwards. And a lot of people said it was the best discussion they'd heard on the trans issues. But, but these people I've mentioned, like we all have very different views on the world, but, but Kathleen and Barry and Joe Rogan and Neil Ferguson and I, what we have in common, you know, Larry Summers is an advisor as well, who, you know, comes from a very different political background than me. But, but we actually, you know, all agree that we need to have more of these open conversations. We need to allow debate. We need to allow a plurality of views. Like we do live in a, in a pluralist society and it's a healthy society because it's pluralist. And you can't have a healthy pluralist society if we're not allowed to openly debate and discuss and let ideas compete. And there might be ideas that some feel really strongly about and others think are wrong. And, and that's okay. You, you shouldn't, shouldn't be able to cancel people because of that. So 
you know, it's, it's, it, it, I, I agree with you that certain kind of tribes do naturally form, but there's a lot of people with a lot of different views right now who are embracing this framework of the university. And it's, it's important to do that. Like we're not trying to do, like obviously the university would fail if it was a conservative university, that'd be stupid. It wouldn't work at all, right? So, so, so when you, you need a lot of different views to, to make this university work. And I, and I do think right now, at least at this moment, there's a lot of people who are allied, but are not in the same tribe at all on this issue. Great. One of my favorite lines is from Karl Marx, just in the spirit of uh, viewpoint diversity. He says, you know, up until now, philosophers have described the world. The point, however, is to change it. I find that so moving. Um, of course, what that sent, what that creed accord did for philosophy, I think it went in a bad direction. <laughs> because as much as I think the point of uh, life is to change the world and not just to understand it, I do think philosophy's strength is contemplation. And once you make philosophy responsible for changing things, you you end up often corrupting it and it becomes just activism. So there's something in this Marxist tendency uh, that I think captures our age, which is a, an aversion to the contemplative and, an, and a focus on the active or the activist. I think that also comes hand in hand with the utilitarian emphasis. What what do entrepreneurs and founders like yourself, what do you understand about Marx that sort of philosophers don't? What, what, do, you, what do you get about changing the world versus understanding the world? And... Um, Given given that that insight, what do you think universities could offer to to counterbalance it or to offset it with maybe more of a focus on the contemplative, lest they become sort of caught in the messy middle between contemplation and action, doing neither well. Well, you know, it, it's it, it is maybe it's a little bit ironic that I, you know someone who grew up, you know, frankly, wanted to be a revolutionary, wanted to build, wanted to create, wanted to change things. I I, I in a lot of ways. In terms of my worldview, I do embrace a somewhat conservative worldview in the sense that I, I have deep appreciation for these different systems we talked about that kind of form the present. And I, I tend to view mistakes that killed a lot of people, whether it was whether it was the you know Nazi Germany and, and, and what happened there, whether it was Mao Zedong, you know, killing 40 million people with with his mistakes in China or Stalin. Uh, the, these were all these mass murdering kind of horrible things in the 20th century, they weren't of the West. They were people trying to radically transform the West thanks to Marx and thanks to these other philosophies. And, and I think we've seen when you try to radically transform society at its core, uh, but it, it, in a way that doesn't appreciate all the ancient wisdoms, you actually end up killing a lot of people and breaking a lot of things. And it's, it's quite negative uh, in, in my perspective. And I think in, hopefully almost in most perspectives, it's, it, those things are just huge failures. So, you know, I think what we what I've learned in order to change the world and make it better, you first have to embrace the functional parts of it and what's working. And you have to acknowledge there's things there's working, there's traditions that are working, and there's wisdom that came before you that's timeless. And, and then and then you have to operate within those constructs. And what you're doing as an entrepreneur is, is if you're doing it properly, is you're operating within those constructs and you're identifying a gap in the world where thanks to some new innovation, thanks to some you know, mistakes from the big players or bad incentives they have or cronyism, whatever else, there's this gap that's emerged and you're taking, you're, you're partnering with other talents and you're, and you're working within, within the overall system of society to disrupt something that's broken and fix it. But you're not, you're not like fundamentally altering society. You're, you're, you're harnessing the competent and functional parts of society. And that, that's what's worked that I've been able to start so many companies and, and also help I think fix a lot of things in the policy world by virtue of just harnessing what's already functional in our society and then applying talent and, and new ideas to it. 
And so, so ironically, it's, it's, it's as much as we are changing society, we're not changing society at the level that Marx was talking about, because I think that's actually foolhardy what he was doing. That's very Hegelian in a way, right? You're trying to take the best of the conservative and the best of the revolutionary and bring them together. So with Hegel in mind, you know, do you have any, um, it's, it's futile to predict the future, but do you have any vision for like what the world looks like in a hundred or 200 years? Has the dialectic exhausted itself? Or do you think there are sort of areas where we're going to find more consensus and more middle ground as we swing between the uh, volatile extremes right now? You know, I'm, I'm obviously generally optimistic. There's, there's so much we can accomplish with technology, with what's happening in the next 20 or 30 years that it's, I think we can have an extraordinary future a hundred years from now. It's, it's, you know, just, just briefly on the innovation side, as you know, like, you know, I, I, I tend to think that we've going to figure out like the main pathways for epigenetic aging, which means people will live very comfortably to 120, 100, 250 very easily. I think in, in 30, 30, 40 years, I think you're going to have an even longer life extension. I don't, I don't think we live forever, but I think we live a lot longer in a lot healthier lives. Uh, you know, I think energy is going to get very cheap. Uh, the environmental stuff that we all obsess about now for good reason uh, with with kind of more advanced nuclear power that's coming, which we should be investing in even more. There's, there's ways to very, very cheaply generate practically infinite energy, which you can use for second carbon out of the air if you want or solving all those problems. So I, I think the problems confronting us today, I think, are, are, are not going to be the problems confronting us 50 years from now. Definitely not going to be the problems confronting us 100 years from now. If anything... The, the the exception to that might be might be like social media and the dynamics there. That's one that's just so complicated in terms of how human incentives work and polarize. And and, and so I, I will we'll very likely still be dealing with our tribal nature in a hundred years, and we'll very likely be dealing with still be dealing with the questions around how do you give everybody dignity to be able to provide value to others. Our natural instinct is to want to work and to serve, and you know to kun alone means to fix the world. To me, to Kunalom and in my work and all of our works are, are related, right? Because when you're working, you're serving others, you're solving a problem, you're you're helping them, you're helping something that needs to be done. And and you know, I think there's there's no way to separate human nature from Dukunalom. That's something we all need. And the question will be like, what are the different ways we serve each other in hundred years? I tend to think there's still gonna be ways everyone could serve everyone else because just the world's never going to be perfect. Uh, but obviously that's going to shift a lot about what's needed as you get to be even, you know, 10 times wealthier than we are now and, and have all the robots doing all sorts of things. And so I think, I think there'll be interesting problems there. There'll be tribes fighting over things. Uh, I think they'll find the things we're fighting over today comical and backwards because they will already have solved the problems we're fighting over today. I like the idea that sort of the meaning of life is serving others. And there's an ironic twist to that, which is that the more you figure it out, your problems, the less problems there are to solve, and thus the less meaning there is to find in in solving those problems. So I wonder if you think that um, some problems are insoluble, and if that's a good thing, because it allows us to 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 work at them in this sort of Sisyphean heroic way. Whereas if well, you want if it really yeah, is yeah, you case, want real. <laughs> you know, there's just if you just think about it, though, I mean, there's always. There's just so much to fix. There's so many different levels to fix. I mean, it's kind of ironic. We're focused on microaggressions now like we never were in the past because we're trying to find the new problem to fix, right? I mean, that's where the microaggression things come from, right? It's actually, you could actually look at the last 10 years and the problems of the last 10 years as caused by people who ran out of problems to fix. I'll give you another one. So microaggressions aside, which you just talked about, this is going to sound really offensive, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, you know, I'm really glad 
that we solved all these gay rights issues. I, when I was younger, I wasn't even sure I was for gay marriage or not, but I have so many friends who are gay, who are married, who are, who are healthy couples, who have kids. And I'm just like, wow, I, 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 I agree with this. 80% of our society agrees with this now, maybe 78, whatever it is. Um, but you know what? There were, there were tens of thousands of people raising hundreds of millions and billions of dollars fighting for gay rights. And that problem went away. So like we're saying now, what problem they have to solve? Well, you know what they did? They all pivoted. And you know what problem they pivoted to? We all know because we're all experiencing it. They all pivoted to trans rights. And, and that's not as one that I agree with quite in the same way, even though I think they should be respected. I think they're taking that issue in a much too extreme, much too ridiculous way. But you know why they're doing it? They have nothing else to solve because they already solved the, the gay rights issue. So, so I think it's, it's fascinating. Like humanity does seem to jump to want to need to solve problems. And, and if you don't give them real problems, they, they, they're going to solve fake problems. And, and so I think it is a fascinating you know, thing to watch right now in, in, in a very wealthy society as we solve problems. Like, and I wish I could point them. There are real problems. I wish I could point the gay rights people to like another problem that's real, like, you know, you know, our, our homelessness policy or whatever. But, 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 but of course it was natural for them to jump to trans rights. And now we have that whole fight. So, so it is fascinating watching people need to solve problems and how they jump to things that aren't even always real problems. I mean, I think I, I, I understand what you're saying in terms of, um, Identity versus homelessness, like homelessness seems to be a much bigger problem than, let's say, you know, your identity. But then when you actually consider human nature, we're willing to suffer so much physio physiologically for the sake of our identities that it's, all, I mean, just to play the other side of it, I identity isn't something to diminish because for a lot of people, it's it's the thing that they stake their lives on. Like you may dis we may disagree with the identity, but then it's, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't want our identity questioned. I'm not against someone having a different identity and, and respecting that. I guess what I'm saying is the types of battles they're fighting right now are like, you know, making sure that these people who have more testosterone can compete in women's sports or making sure everyone uses the right pronouns for them or otherwise they'll be offended and you should get in trouble if you don't. And they're just, and it's just, they're just, they're just taking some of these battles to and going and relabeling all of the restrooms and they're, just, they're taking some of these battles to such an extreme level about things that it don't, maybe some people do think because their identity, they matter more than anything else. That's, that, that's fair to, 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 to me, to me, it's kind of like, there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of these, like, like giving kids drugs that are irreversible and changing it. So they can't be, can't reproduce anymore. And there's all these kids 10 years later, they're angry that they got their gender changed and they, and they're sterile now. Right. There's just, there's just a lot of irrational things happening because they need to push something and they're willing to push it, even if it's irrational because they need to fight for something. That, that, that's my perspective on it. There's a general, I think, a general experience that many immigrants and children of immigrants have, which is like the early generation works really hard and then the next generation benefits from that hard work but doesn't, but doesn't know how to work hard themselves. And so it's like very, it's very beautiful and very sad, right? Like my, in my own story, you know, my, my grandfather grew up in the Great Depression, like he worked really, really hard his whole life, and I benefited from that. I'll never know what it's like to really grow up in that kind of scarcity. That's exactly what he wanted for me. But at the same time, it seems like inevitably we're going to create fake problems or you know lesser problems the more uh, the more well off we are and the the less existential we are. And that, that, I guess that's the traditional cycle of of hard times creating strong men. And then, and then, then creating good times and creating weak men, right? And that's like the natural cycle of history people, people talk about. And you, there's definitely some of that 
going on right now. And I'm not sure if that's even avoidable as a natural cycle based on human nature. And then that you need, you need the, you need the weak, weak men to do enough stupid things to create hard times before you, before you get people stepping in and, and having, having strong men fix it. I, I, it's a little, obviously it's too simplified, but, but there's some, there is a little bit of that. And, and that, that, that's the challenge, obviously, you know, for, for, for all of us in this society, because frankly, all of us are living much wealthier than, than anyone did three, four, 500 years ago. And how do we, how do we raise kids with the right values and the right framing on life and, 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 and not get them caught up in, in the weird fake problems, you know? Well, I think that's where virtue and uh, religion and the classics might be able to play a role. <laughs> so uh, to the extent that utilitarians care about giving us attention to, to impactful uh, questions rather than sort of questions merely of symbolism, let's say, uh, then maybe there's room for an alliance. That's why, and that, that's why we got to be studying with the Talmud. I agree. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to uh, add before I let you go? No, it was wonderful to see you, Zahar. Thanks for having me. Great, great to chat, Joe. Thanks so much. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.